Welcome to Let's Talk Sales. This is the podcast for anyone interested in growing sales. Today's episode of Let's Talk Sales is brought to you by our ebook, Leadership for Organizational Growth, where we discuss the nature of leadership, common myths and theories of leadership, and best practices for developing the skills you need to drive revenue growth. Make sure you download a copy today. You can find it in the notes for today's show at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod three five seven. This is Elizabeth Frederick, and I have really enjoyed getting to know today's guest. He's the co-founder and senior outsourcing strategist at Eloa, a software development outsourcing platform for startups, which he co-founded right out of college at Vanderbilt, which um, I think a lot of us wish we were doing things that productive right out of college. He has (laughs) spent his entire career working with tech startups on more than 250 different software development projects. Welcome to the show, Doai Lee. Thanks for having me, Elizabeth. Really glad to be here. I'm just so glad that you could join me, Dawe, and I have really enjoyed getting to know you. I know our listeners are going to enjoy hearing from you. Um, Before we jump into the rest of our conversation, I'd love it if you could introduce yourself to the listeners um, and maybe just tell them a little bit about how you got to where you are. Sure. Yeah. So my name is Dawe. Uh, I grew up in China, came here to the United States when I was eight years old, Um, was raised in Memphis, Tennessee. I went to middle school, high school there. And um, went to Vanderbilt for college. So that's how I ended up uh, here in Nashville and um, met my co-founders in college. I started multiple startups that didn't work out. And uh, long story short, I ended up graduating uh, back in 2017. Ended up deciding to stay in Nashville after I graduated. Didn't have a job. Was driving Lyft and Uber to pay for rent. And um, yeah, it just felt like, you know, it was the right time for me to jump into uh, another startup full-time this time because I was uh, a student entrepreneur prior mm-hmm. to that. And my co-founders were still in, were still in college. So I was the first co-founder that was uh, out, that was graduated back in 20, uh, end of 2017, beginning of 2018. So that was when we started um, the Alawa that people know today, which is uh, a company that helps people outsource to highly vetted teams overseas. And we use a very uh, data-driven and tech-enabled sort of method to uh, reduce a lot of outsourcing risk and increasing the success rate of outsourcing to these to these companies. Um, so yeah, that's what I've been working on for the last four and a half years, going on five years now. Um, can't believe it's been that long. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so now here, here we are. So we've grown from a uh, zero revenue business back in 2018 and scaled it to uh, a $4 million business it is today. Nice. Um, I love that you were just out of college and you were still the senior person when it comes to co-founding because everybody else is, is still yes. in school. You're the yeah. gray hair. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You're graduate. Um, yeah, it's funny how that like almost worked out because if we were all in the same class, it wouldn't have worked out because we would have all been, you know, kind of graduated, wanted to find a job, right? So because I was the first one out, I was able to kind of hit the ground running. Uh, while they were still in school. Um, and of course, when they graduated, we were still bootstrapped as a company. So when my co-founder <laughs> graduated, um, I I was still full-time and they went to go work with companies like Google and Amazon and, uh, and Capgemini. So um, they took some corporate jobs while we still continued to bootstrap and get the company off the ground. Uh, and then a year later, they were able to um, jump ship and, and come on board full-time. 
That's awesome. Um, I, I love this space that you're in because as I talk to so many different businesses, I know a lot of businesses that didn't traditionally have you know, software development as part of what they did, um, are discovering mm -hmm. maybe they want to build an app. Maybe they want to have a platform um, that they're able to leverage to integrate with whatever it is that they've historically offered. And obviously, we here at CFS focus on sales. You focus on development, but also sales. And <laughs> what I hear from leaders in organizations is, the balance between sales and development can be challenging in terms of timing, in terms of investment resources, in terms of training, lots of different areas. So I'd love to just hear from you with, with all of these different projects you've worked on with your clients, what are some of the common challenges that you see leaders face? And, um, and then we'll get into some best practices, obviously, that you've learned. Yeah, uh, there's tons of challenges that comes with software development, as you may imagine. So um, I think that one of the biggest challenges is sort of managing your team, managing the right expectations uh, mm. and leading your development team correctly. And that's strictly in the sense of development. That's not uh, talking about sort of scaling the sales team, uh, scaling the sales side of things. Um, but just on the side of the, the uh, on, soft, on the side of software development, there's uh, tons of challenges with um, setting the right expectations, managing teams, so on and so forth. And all of those pain points magnify when you're working with a nearshore or offshore development team mm. that have different cultural backgrounds, different time zone differences uh, from from where where we are, right? Um, so there's tons of challenges there. And then on the sales side, there's uh, a lot of challenges in terms of like finding product market fit, right? Uh, so before you actually push a product into the market and actually hire a sales team to sell the product, you first have to find the right product market fit with your MVP, your minimum viable product. And um, that could be really challenging for first-time founders uh, mm -hmm. or even second, third-time founders who are um, trying to build a product and they're trying to verify the market validity of that product uh, through their MVP. Um, and that's all before... Right, you hire a sales team, push your product, sell your product, generate revenue. Uh, you first have to find out like who, uh, which customers actually want to use your product and actually want to buy your product. Absolutely, I I love that you started with what some people might um, kind of assume is going to be easy because I can say even just from personal experience, it's a lot harder <laughs> than some people might think. So at Criteria for Success, um, in my time here, we've developed or, you know, um, intended to develop, let's say, uh, two different mm -hmm. software platforms over the years. One was long, long time ago. I'm talking almost 15 years mm -hmm. ago at this point. Um, the other well, one is it's still in process. And that idea of, first of all, just really understanding this kind of ties into both things that you just shared. What is it that you actually want to build? And that might seem like a simple question, but yes. it's it's not necessarily. If you if you want to market to one specific kind kind of buyer, it's going to be a different specs basically than if you want to just pivot to a slightly different audience. And exactly. there will be features that different kinds of industries or or different kinds of people might be interested in. And mm. just identifying the the scope of what you have or of what you're going to want 
is challenging. And if you don't have the expertise because you're not a software developer yourself, you might think, okay, I want these 10 things and I think they're easy. And mm -hmm. I wish I could have these two things, but I think they're going to be hard. And then a developer might say, actually, those two things you think are really hard. Those are pretty easy. But five of the 10 things that you listed are actually really challenging. And so we don't yeah. necessarily have um, have the expertise to do that. So that that initial, what are we actually building and who is it for? I can see that that's a, that's a whole kind of big stage of this process that if you shortchange it, you're going to look up when you're hopefully done building something and you mm. might be in trouble uh, because maybe nobody wants to buy it or it doesn't work in right. a way that it's useful. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's the issue that we ran into when we were building um, our own apps, right? Before we kind of got into this space and trying to solve this problem for other founders was uh, we built a few apps as college students and we were just really in love with our own solution. Uh, and we weren't in love with the problem, right? And now we learned to be obsessed with the problem and not the solution. But back then when we were building apps for, you know, 18, 19-year-old boys at Vanderbilt, you know, um, building apps in the dorm room, it was more like, oh my gosh, this app is so cool. People will love to use this. Um, we know people would love to use it because we would use it, right? Um, mm -hmm. and, and some of them got like a little bit of traction and, and stuff like that, but it never gained like actual traction uh, in the real market because um, we were just building a product that we love, uh, not necessarily solving the problems that customers really need. That's such a great, um, such a great point. And that obviously is the foundation of selling, right? Is that you need to be solving a problem for a buyer. And if you right. don't start from that entire foundation um, as, as the basis before you design your platform before you think about what it's for, you could have a nice shiny app that looks pretty, that does cool things, that has buttons and, you know, all the other like fun stuff and notifications. And if it doesn't solve a problem for anybody, you're going to be in real trouble. If you somehow manage to get some money and hire a sales team, they're not going to be able to yeah. sell it because <laughs> the way they sell is by identifying problems and then going out there and finding people with those problems. Absolutely. Definitely. And, you know, the logistics of certainly, um, I, I think, you know, we, we're talking here about outsourcing. And that's something that, you know, most organizations that we've seen that are startups do have to make a decision relatively early on. Are you going to invest in building out your own development team or are you going to outsource? development. And can you talk mm. a little bit about why organizations might make one decision or the other? Yeah, so there's um, there's many different reasons. So let me see if I can list all of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, so as you may know, so hiring an in-house team, there's uh, a tons of cost and overhead that's associated with that. So starting with um, recruiting the right people, um, you don't want to just have one developer typically like you want to have maybe two developers maybe someone that's QAing the product maybe someone that's managing the developers right um if you start out with a co-founder cto and you're giving them you know 50 percent or 30 percent equity in your company to 
be a co-founder and, and be the CTO of a product, that's kind of a different story, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if someone's building a product on sweat equity, they can do everything front end, back end, QA, everything by themselves. That's that's totally fine. Um, but we're talking about kind of um, hiring your team and why people would do that uh, or outsource versus sort of hiring a full team in-house, right? So uh, a lot of it's the cost. Uh, is very time consuming. Um, you have to pay the developers uh, benefits and, and healthcare and, and everything like that on top of the salary that you're paying them as well. Uh, and, and the salary for software engineers here in the United States and North America is pretty uh, expensive mm-hmm. for a front end, back end, or a full stack developer um, for that matter. So the number one reason is is cost. And the second reason I think that is pretty comparable to the first reason is the flexibility uh, when you outsource. So uh, you're not committed to, let's say, like a one-year or multi-year contract. You're not giving away equity. Um, you're sort of just hiring a team for three months or six months or uh, maybe longer, maybe shorter. So you're able to have that flexibility to ramp up and scale up your team and scale down your team uh, on command when you're working with outsourced teams. And you're essentially able to have a team of developers, those front-end, back-end, QA, project manager, um, essentially on demand and uh, hire a team of four or five people to work and uh, work on your application or maintain your application or continue to build your roadmap uh, pretty much instantaneously instead of going through the the process of recruiting and all those things. Absolutely. Um, I would imagine, you know, to what you just said, let's say you, you know, there's the time involved in building out version one (laughs) and then there's um collecting feedback there's there's planning out what are the changes that we might need there's um then planning out you know what's the timetable for those and a lot of those steps the people who are involved in doing them will need to change (laughs) and so if you've got a software developer just sitting on staff you know twiddling their thumbs waiting for you to figure out what are the next changes that you need to make um, that's not necessarily a great use of that resource so certainly just even from a like you said you know balancing the 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 time of the investment really makes a lot of sense um absolutely i i would imagine that you know obviously you're working with clients over helping to facilitate this development and and helping to connect them with the right partners. The timing of when to begin to have a sales plan, to hire salespeople, um, to develop, you know, marketing collateral and other things. I would imagine Mm. companies maybe start that at different times. What are some of the what are some examples that you've seen either of things that really didn't work where it was a lesson learned the hard way or, um, or some stories and examples where you've seen things work really well, best practices that you've identified? Well, the, the best, most successful startups I work with typically get to selling really quickly. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and you compare that with startups that are more, I don't know, more pitch focused. So they develop a product, they have a business, they have investors, right? Um, but they don't get the revenue for years. Mm-hmm. And they go to pitch competitions and win pitch competitions at certain times, right? Um, well, from my perspective, I think pitching to investors or pitching to a panel of judges is different than actually pitching to your customer. Mm-hmm. So 
the most successful startups I've seen develop the market, uh, sorry, develop the product, uh, develop the MVP at a, a very fast pace, right? Within four to six months, they get the product market, um, prove the hypothesis of uh, whatever their product is trying to solve and pivot really quickly, depending on customer feedback. So they get to the selling part really quickly, right? And uh, how, how, you, how you do that is, you know, we talked about product market fit before and how mm-hmm. you get to product market fit is a lot of product market fit interviews or market mm-hmm. research interviews um, with your potential customers, your potential market. And from personal experience and from experience of several clients I've worked with, uh, the market research, product market fit interviews, whatever you want to call it, um, can easily translate into uh, into potential sales opportunities, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're sort of asking them what what pain points they're uh, you know experiencing, uh, how can you create a product that solves their pain points, and uh, typically. You know, how you would end with those product market fit interviews is kind of describing your product and kind of asking them if they would be a beta user for your product mm-hmm. uh, and an initial uh, tester for your product, right? Um, so that's how we actually onboarded our initial customers early on in, in 2018 when we were starting out and doing a lot of product market fit interviews and market research calls and interviews um, and asking those people if they would help us potentially test our business model out. Uh, and some of those people became some of our uh, initial customers. So that's first starting out is um, getting to selling really quickly through mm-hmm. doing product market fit interviews, market research interviews. And then um, once you do that, you're able to sort of convert some of your, your, your first customers, which I think is the hardest part of any business is getting that first initial 10 customers. Uh, Absolutely. And from 10 to, to a, uh, you know, 100 your first 1 million in revenue, right? That's always the hardest. So um, my biggest critique to a lot of the, the startups, uh, a lot of the, um, or the startup sort of environment, right? That we're fed mm-hmm. through mainstream media or mainstream sort of narrative is, it, you know, you don't need to get the revenue. You, you got investment money. Um, you can go to all these pitch competitions forever and ever um, without actually pitching to a customer. So my advice is always to be heavily customer focused and get to selling really quickly rather than uh, waiting for that, that moment to, you know, sell your product. Absolutely. That makes so much sense. And with um, the direction that the economy is moving right now, I think a lot (laughs) of, a lot of, you know, startups who maybe have been given a long leash and a lot of investment, but weren't necessarily focused on revenue are going to see that leash tighten up just a little bit. And um, right. having, you know, been in the in the corporate world in 2008, I remember seeing that, you know, even outside it, I'm sure, you know, if you weren't, if you weren't there, you, you could still see that happening. And you can go pretty far pre-revenue when everything is great and investors are happy to throw yeah. money at you. But right. when, when the interest rates little, low, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and then when things get a little bit more difficult, when when you know money maybe is a little bit tighter, if you haven't built that infrastructure um, to connect with customers, it's it's going to be much harder. And the idea of those market fit interviews of figuring out what it is that people want. What I'm hearing that you get out of that is, is really a lot of different things. Obviously it's helping you to continue to refine the scope of 
what you're developing to refine mm-hmm. how you're positioning it. Maybe even just, we're going to use this word and not this word. You're also driving your messaging. You're driving um, your, your core sales tools. You know, to us, one of the foundational sales tools is what we call a problem opportunity matrix. And that's simply aligning the features of your offering with the problems that they solve for your buyers. <laughs> and mm. it's amazing how many organizations have never taken the time to do that. And so you have in one bucket, here are all of our features. Isn't this shiny? Isn't this amazing? Isn't this beautiful? And then over here, maybe you've done the work to say, here are the problems we solve for our customers. But you're expecting and hoping that salespeople are going to naturally draw those lines or that customers are going to draw those lines of how does that feature solve mm-hmm. that problem. But that's uh, that's a high expectation to make. And that's going to be especially difficult for maybe a junior person that you hire, um, it, it, you know, the, right. the, the less technical people. And so if you can provide a resource like that to the team to say, hey, what we heard from customers is they struggled with this, they struggled with this, they struggled with this. And so we developed a product that does this in this way. See how that solves that problem? It does this in this way. See how it solves that problem? You're, you're kind of building a foundation for your training and onboarding plan as well as for you know the marketing that's going to go out to clients you might use slightly different words in the in the customer facing documents the prospect facing documents but it's going to be the same the same kind of a message yeah definitely we've kind of gotten into a little bit of so you've you've made the decision that you're going to focus on revenue quickly you're going to you know plan for sales, you're going to build sales collateral, you're going to hire sales people. What have you learned about how to get salespeople kind of up and running relatively quickly, selling something that is new, right? It's it's a lot easier to go into an established company that's been making a thing, delivering a thing, offering a service for a long time, and mm-hmm. start to sell that. Very different when it's brand new, whether it's creating a new space entirely, you know, providing a new function, service, platform that never existed. A little bit easier if you're developing, you know, our version of XYZ that's out there already. But still, right. it's, a, it's a little more challenging. So what have you seen in terms of kind of best practices or, or how does it need to work really to, again, that balance of sales and development to, to get salespeople up to speed? and enable them to have intelligent conversations basically with buyers. Yeah, absolutely. That, that we have a decent amount of experience in because historically we've hired uh, people on our sales team that absolutely have zero sales background and uh, zero tech background either. So they're completely going in blind. <laughs> they don't know anything <laughs> about sales, anything about tech. Um, the most recent person that we hired on our team, she had um, a bachelor's in uh, violin performance from Rice University and oh. a master's in violin performance from uh, University of Ann Arbor. So she's played super, in the symphony her whole life. Super applicable. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and she applied to be a part, be a outsourcing strategist, which is kind of like a account executive sales, account management uh, at our company. And um, within the first 30 seconds of my interview with her, I had I knew that she was going to be be hired. I mean, there was several rounds after that, but I knew that she was going to be hired because <laughs> she she just had it. She just had that that X factor, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and she's been performing like extremely well, a huge addition to our sales team. So she had zero sales experience, um, absolutely none. And 
absolutely didn't know anything about tech. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and same thing with our other uh, sales, um, we don't call them sales reps, but our other strategists mm -hmm. uh, on our team as well. Um, they, they've had zero tech background and sales background. So I think that there's a few things I would break it down to. So the first thing that uh, I would say is you, you have to have a sales playbook, right? Where all of the sales process, all of the sales knowledge base is standardized uh, on one playbook, whether that be a PDF or Word document. We like to use a software called Notion. I'm sure a lot of your, your listeners have heard of that. It's just organizing all of your sales process all of the sales knowledge within the team. I'm talking about FAQs, pitch, uh, sales process, account management process. Um, everything has to be standardized, right? Um, and written down and trackable. And it has to be evolving and iterating over time. Mm -hmm. So it can't just be, as you, as you scale a sales team, uh, if you're the sales manager or, or the head of sales uh, for a company and you're scaling a sales team, it can't just, all of the knowledge can't just be in your head, right? So you have to get that out. Um, make sure it's well documented and make sure that other people can go in and check your work, make comments on the process uh, and stuff like that in order to keep iterating on that process. Right. So that's number one is having a sales playbook, whether that be a PDF or you use notion or you use some type of a notes app to document everything on, on, you know, quote unquote paper. Um, so that's number one. The second thing that we do is uh, we get people to, just shadow calls, right? Shadow calls with someone who has mastered the sales process, who has a proven track record of, you know, a high close rate, um, has been in the industry for a while. So um, with the salespeople that I train, I typically get them to shadow me on a few calls. And uh, after we shadow, um, after we do the shadowing on the calls, we always uh, debrief and strike the iron when it's hot, right? So after the sales call, we always have a debriefing call. And this is all during the onboarding process of, let's say, the first month. Um, they're, they're doing a lot of this. And then eventually, I'm shadowing them on their calls, and then we debrief about their calls, uh, and we're giving, uh, creating that feedback loop to, to where they can start learning, you know, what to do and what not to do, uh, what to say and what not to say uh, within those sales calls. Um, Within our sales process, the, the hardest part, um, maybe some of your listeners can relate to this, is the the initial call, right? Mm -hmm. The the rest of the calls is a little bit uh, a little bit easier in terms of you're you're doing you know you're you're arranging the call with uh, one of the partner firms. That's a, a lot of the partner firm doing the selling. You're doing the a proposal presentation. You're doing a contract overview. A lot of that can be easily teachable. The initial call is the hardest to teach because there's so many variables to it. There's a set structure to it. Um, and every initial call is different in, in some sort of a way because the customer is different and their needs are different. Um, so that's the hardest to teach. And that's the thing that we really, really focus on when we um, onboard new salespeople is mastering that uh, initial call, mastering how to identify needs, mastering how to move the client forward from the initial call. Uh, so on and so forth. So yeah, those are I say like the three main things that we use. The biggest thing, of course, is the the playbook. Uh, mm -hmm. If you're if you if you don't have a playbook, it, it's incredibly hard to scale a sales team. Uh, and then the other things uh, in terms of training is just a lot of uh, a lot of shadowing, a lot of um, mentorship, coaching, and then obviously talking about um, what what went down 
on, on the sales call, debriefing um, what happened, uh, what can be done better on the next sales call and what, uh, what that person did really well. Absolutely. I, I love so much of, of what you said there. And obviously, um, you know, I, I'm always excited to hear about sales playbooks because that's one of the things we help our clients develop at Criteria for Success. And I'm the product oh, manager for it. Um, but yeah. it, it's something that organizations really often just don't do. And we see it with startups and we see it with mature organizations. And that's a lot of work that you are putting on your salespeople. And you're also creating a higher bar for the kinds of salespeople that you're going to hire if you don't have a playbook. If you have a playbook, you can hire somebody who's a violinist. <laughs> and, you know, so long as they're, they're a smart person, <laughs> they have that X factor, they can yeah. see those best practices and follow them. But if it's not somewhere, you're going to have some people performing really well. But, you know, maybe I have three core best practices that I use all the time and they're amazing. You don't know them. And then you've got, right. you know, three or four things that you do really well that are amazing. And I would run into those same situations and not know how to handle them. And so That's just cool. sharing the best practices with, with the existing top performers can be incredibly powerful. Um, and that really leads to, you know, as you said, shadowing it's that's when you you kind of see the magic you see the stuff that can't go in a sales playbook the you know the the kind of flair that somebody has the the way that sure. they maybe approach yeah. something and that can drive a lot of really important conversations and to, to add to that I think like as a sales leader for people who are sales managers or vp of sales or you know if you're kind of at the upper end of a sales organization and you're leading a team of sales people uh, the playbook actually saves you a ton of time. So the biggest reason, the biggest motivator, I, I hate doing playbook, like just kind of going in and editing the, the documents and the notion and, you know, getting everything in my head out on that, on that notion document. Right. I, I, I'm extroverted. I like talking to people. Uh, I don't like sitting in, in front of my laptop and editing process, right. That's not my strength, but what motivates me to do it is I, I don't want to be, um, you know, when, when my sales team is, let's say like, 10 people or 20 people or 30 people, I don't want a lot of people hitting me up uh, on a day-to-day -day basis asking me how to do things, right? So I can always tell them to reference the playbook first. If the playbook doesn't answer the question that they have at hand, then we can get on a call and actually walk through uh, the actual problem that they're, that they're experiencing, right? So having a playbook, having that standardized process all centralized in one place where you can just refer them a link or uh, just tell them to you know, read that part, section of the playbook uh, will save you a lot of time uh, when it comes to managing your team as well. Absolutely. I, I cannot tell you how many times we've, we've heard from leaders, you know, I don't want to necessarily take the time up front to write this down, but do you want to have that conversation 15 times with people? And, right. yeah. you know, overall that time is going to more than pay off long-term, even if, at the very moment, it's not exactly the most fun. Um, cer certainly, if any listeners, I can't help myself, if any listeners have struggled to develop a sales playbook, feel free to reach out. We can help you with that. <laughs> um, yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome that you guys help people do that. That's fantastic. Um, something else that I wanted to kind of pick your brain on, because this is so important and something that we see a lot of organizations maybe not leverage is that information flow back and forth between kind of product management, maybe development and sales where salespeople are out there 
they are talking to customers and they're likely getting really useful information, whether it's, you know, better ways to talk about and to market and to position the current features. But it's also, you know, hey, everybody wants our app to do this and it doesn't or people find Mm. this part of it really confusing. Have you seen any um, any examples or any kind of core best practices for developing that information flow back from sales? Yeah, so I'll share kind of like our internal flow at Alawa and how we build our product. Um, it's all based off of customer feedback and what we, we track something called pain points. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we do that on a tool called Airtable. It's kind of like an Excel sheet on steroids. There's many different ways to configure it. Um, but our salespeople are actually the closest to the pain point, right? So not so they're responsible for not only acquiring the account, but also managing that relationship and managing the account the entire way through, uh, servicing the entire lifetime uh, duration of that client. So they're observing, on the ground observing most of the pain points. They're the closest to the pain points. Mm-hmm. And we actually have a KPI internally where uh, each person on our team has to log at least one pain point every single week. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's we review that on, on our one-on-ones, on my one-on-ones with the salesperson, uh, every salesperson on our team. Hey, do you log a, a pain point this week? Um, and then on our sales team syncs once a week, we discuss some of the major pain points. We don't have to discuss every single one, but uh, if it's a pain point that's you know pretty worthy of mentioning or worthy of bringing up to the team, um, we then discuss that as a as a team. Mm-hmm. And our pro- our sales things are led by our COO, our op- operations officer, and our COO also leads the product team things. Right, he's the bridge between the product and the sales team uh, when they're in a company. So he is able to sort of relay some of those pain points back to the product team. But also during the product team syncs, they're reviewing the pain points that we're logging on the Airtable, right? They're mm-hmm. going pain point by pain point. They're kind of reading the pain point through, discussing it together on how to come up with new features or new ways of automating the software development process to make our product the best it can be for our customers. Um, and then within the sales table, I'll kind of dive a little bit deeper in t- terms of how we track that. So we track each pain point as uh, a, a symptom of the cause, but not the actual cause mm. of the problem, right? Yeah. So imagine if you're getting sick, if I have COVID, right? Uh, you know, I, I go to the doctor and I tell them all the symptoms I'm experiencing, but they don't know that I have COVID yet until they test me for COVID positive or negative, right? So I'm telling them I have symptoms of, you know, runny nose, um, you know, got sore throat and I got like a minor fever, right? So those are the pain points that customers experience. They're simply symptoms that come from a root cause. So essentially we tag these pain points using different tags um, and our COO, Brian, is able to pull that Airtable data and is able to sort these pain points based off of those tags and then is able to sort them into the different symptom categories, right? And out of those symptoms, we sort of try to identify the root cause that has created those symptoms in the first place. So let's say, um, I don't know, like something simple like a, like a customer not sort of getting updates from the development team or, or not knowing what the development team is doing on a day-to-day mm-hmm. basis. So that's a pain point where it's at the root cause of it, there's lack of transparency and there's not enough sort of uh, daily stand-ups, daily stand-ups or updates being done through our platform where they're getting updates about their 
product in their development on a day-to-day basis, right? So the symptom that they're experiencing is frustration um, from the development team, like, you know, not being transparent, not getting up to date, right? Not updating them uh, on a day-to-day basis about uh, development and where their product is going. And it leads to, you know, a deeper root cause, which is, um, you know, the developer or the project manager actually needs to be more disciplined. Um, there needs to be a process that we should enforce with a development team, right? Um, mm-hmm. So how we would solve that problem is during our audits, when we audit our partner firms every two weeks, all of our partner firms get audited uh, on two weeks and they get graded on how well they perform on about 30 different variables. So we just add one more variable to the audits saying that, hey, we're going to audit for daily stand-up um, accuracy and daily stand-up uh, details, right, um, for every partner firm that we have in our network. And if the daily standards are not filled in a detailed manner or if the daily standards are not filled accurately or filled every day, then their audit score decreases with us. And uh, and their overall audit score determines how many projects they get with us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a way of holding them accountable uh, to that sort of root cause of the pain point. And that's how we ultimately solve that pain point um, is sort of creating that process. Mm. That's that's such a great um, process. And I'm going to pull out a couple key elements because what I'm hearing is, first of all, you've got a platform, you have a place where things go. <laughs> you have an <laughs> expectation that you've set yes. that information is going into that place. And then you have multiple people and groups and functions involved in reviewing what goes in there. You're reviewing it within the sales team. You're you know, bubbling up to the top, kind of the the key ones that you want to make sure, hey, you know, this person on the team noticed this, want to make sure everybody, everybody hears that because that's something mm-hmm. we should all be asking about. Um, and then having the COO able to kind of bridge the, the communication between the sales group and the development group is really mm-hmm. key to say, okay, we're hearing a lot of this. Customers don't, know necessarily what they want. And I think this is really important, the difference between the symptom and the root cause, because customers don't always know what they need. They'll, they'll have a problem. They can talk, talk about the problem. Salespeople are maybe not the best people to be figuring out what's the solution to that problem. <laughs> Instead, if we can really articulate the problem, yes. the symptom, and then push that to people whose entire job is figuring out what's the best way to solve that problem. <laughs> it's it's something Absolutely. you're taking off sales's plate and you're going to end up with a better result again with some things will be easier. Maybe there'll be, you know, we can we can add this widget, we can add this thing whatever and it's going to just automate that. Oh, I thought we'd have to do a whole complicated thing. Never mind. And um it's it, you're you're also going to be able to, I would imagine, sometimes discover, wow, sales is hearing this as a problem that customers have. We actually can already solve that. And clearly our training, our onboarding isn't adequate because they don't know how to respond when they hear that question, when they hear that concern. They don't know how it ties to our existing right. features. So it's, it's right. really, um, you're getting a lot out of, again, the foundation of just a place where you're capturing this, uh, review processes, 
expectations that people are consistently putting that information in and then having the right people involved to, to bridge communication. That really sounds like um, a functional process and, and some just core simple best practices that any organization can really think about. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the, I might be wrong on this, but I do believe in it within Toyota, there's um, a concept called Jakota. Uh, you can Google this for people mm-hmm. who want to fact check me, but uh, essentially it allows for the assembly line, anyone in this inland, if they see a problem to press a button and it pauses the entire assembly line. Right. And a QA engineer from, you know, the office comes out and actually that goes to the part of the, the assembly line where that uh, issue was identified and actually examines what was going on. Right. So I think that's a really interesting concept because we all know Toyota, right? Like they, they're able to create such a amazing manufacturing process and they've created some of the most reliable cars known to man uh, because of that. Right. Um, and it's just really interesting how, uh, they innovate internally as a company because they sort of really empower that ground person, that that person on the ground uh, level of the manufacturing floor to be mm-hmm. able to pause the entire assembly process simply because he sees something that is wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Um, rather than going from like a top-down type of a structure where um, if the management sees something wrong, they they pause the process or, or change the direction or whatever, they really empower that. Um, person at the ground level to be able to stop that similar line uh, because they observe a problem or see something that's that's uh, not supposed to be there. Absolutely. That's it's so incredibly important. You know, the people closest to the where they're able to notice the problem, whether it's in manufacturing a product, the people on the assembly line, whether it's the people who are talking to customers and, and hearing about you know, what they think of what it is that that you're selling, they're the ones who are going to be able to notice. Even um, if you've got a customer service function, having a way that you're capturing the feedback from that customer service function, you know, what are the key problems that people are calling about over and over and over again? Hey, maybe we should fix that. We should make that easier. We should improve communication so that customers mm-hmm. don't need to call our customer support department yeah. and, and right. ask you know the same question ten thousand times. Or do we need to have a frequently asked questions? You know, whatever that might be. We we just often see information of people who are on the ground who are interacting with your customers gets locked inside that that small group and doesn't get back to development, doesn't get back to product management, which is just um, such a waste, really. There absolutely needs to be a a symbiotic relationship between the product team and and the sales team. And uh, I know typically they're at odds with each other. You know, neither of them want to talk to each other because they're so drastically different from each other, right? The product team talks to computers, sales teams talk to people, right? (laughs) So, you know, it's it's, it's so different, but... um, yeah, there, there needs to be a symbiotic relationship because there's so many golden nuggets that the sales team is learning because they're on the ground warriors that are right talking to the customers and gleaning information, gleaning pain points. Um, and those pain points are golden nuggets for the product team. Uh, we, we, we call it, within a company, we call it gold mining whenever we kind of, <laughs> you know, are identifying pain points and, and you know, a fire happens with the project and, um, you know, it, it, in the early parts of our business, we're like, ah, oh, that's terrible, like a, another fire. But uh, over the course of 
the the last few years we just learned that oh my gosh boy each fire has actually led to a lot of innovation wins mm-hmm. within our company in fact all of our innovations have come from client fire so uh so now whenever there's a client fire we just like rub our hands and and really i'm just really excited to see like what innovation really comes out of this because uh we're able to help future clients um you know create an even better outsourcing experience uh because because of fires Absolutely. Not fun in the moment necessarily, but it, it no. pays off. <laughs> <laughs> no. Possibly uh, the most challenging part of my job is, is yeah, putting out fires. Yeah. I don't think any of us like that. If, if you wanted to do that, you would be a firefighter. Um, yes. <laughs> all right. On that very, very, very sad, I think that's a dad joke. I mean, not relevant, but um, I, I realize kind of what time it is. So I want to kind of pivot. Um, something I always like to ask our guests is, are there any trends that you're keeping an eye on, whether it's related to what we've been talking about today or just something in your role, you know, at your organization? Um, what are you, what are you keeping an eye on? Um, oh gosh, I think there's two trends related to what we talked about today so number one is uh i think the trend of outsourcing the trend of the gig economy um Mm -hmm. growing bigger and bigger so i think first we were able to share simple things like you know a a room within our house we were able to share uh a ride with someone else right we were able to share scooters and parking spots right so i think Mm -hmm. as the gig economy becomes bigger and bigger i think we're going to this uh heading towards a world where more and more things are shared. Uh, and that being so, more and more complex things will be shared. So instead of simple human capital like an Uber or Lyft driver, we're going to be sharing more complex human capital like accountants or software engineers or the digital marketers or um, so on and so forth, right? So I think the trend is trending towards that way where we're seeing businesses uh, outsource more. They're keeping the in-house team really small and really lean. And they're outsourcing the rest because there's connectivity, there's integration, there's transparency. Um, you know, you've got platforms like Zoom and Slack and all of these cool tools that you didn't have uh, 10, 15 years ago when you're outsourcing. So I think we're seeing a world where it's more connected. And hopefully we will see a, um, you know, a future. Maybe we get to get the privilege of being that company. Maybe not. But like we're trending towards a future where our vision is um can anyone in any part of the world hire a software development team or a digital marketing team, an accounting team, uh, completely within one platform and manage, pay out that team, view data insights on that team, all completely within one super platform? And that's sort of the, the future of work uh, that we sort of see trending. Um, so that's the first trend. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think the second trend is more related to sales uh, and it's more related to our generation and the generation that's coming after us. So millennials and Gen Z, like, I don't know, it's, it's, we, we've been exposed to a lot of advertisements. Uh, we've been exposed to a lot of marketing. Um, we're the most sold to generations in, in history. I feel like, I mean, you mm-hmm. go on Instagram, TikTok, you're constantly being sold to, right? So I think that has created a mindset within, within our generations um, that is really, really sensitive to like BS and really mm-hmm. sensitive to people trying to sell snake oil or take advantage of them. Right. 
um, because our, 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 our generation has been taken advantage of or have been bombarded with marketing messages. So I think the way that sales is going to look like um, as our generation grows older and we become managers and VPs and decision makers of these companies, um, it's going to look a little bit different. Uh, I don't know what that looks like yet, but I'm, I kind of have a feeling it's going to be more, um, sales is going to be more like teaching focused. So it's going to be more informational, mm-hmm. number one. And I think number two is it's going to be more focused on, really, really focused on like solving the client or the customer's problem. So genuinely, um, you know, showing that you care about the person that's on the other side of the Zoom call or the other side of the the phone or the other side of the room. Um, And then the third one is just kind of being really genuine on sales calls and sales interactions. Um, The old way of selling, you know, the the Wolf of Wall Street, like all that stuff, (laughs) Jordan Belfort, like there's a lot of old models of selling where I don't think it's going to translate into our generation. And that's what I'm seeing. Um, as I'm speaking to these, these young founders, um, there, there needs to be a high level of genuineness um, with them and, and you, you, that you have to really show that you care and that you're, you're really not caring about your own commission or your own bonus or your, your revenue. You have to really show that you care about them and their problem. Absolutely. First of all, thank you for including me in your generation. I am, I think, what's considered an elder millennial. So we're an elder millennial. <laughs> Technically, high school class of two thousand. I think I'm where the term millennial oh, wow. actually came from. Yes, but, yeah, um... you're, you're by definition the the millennial. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, that's um, I I love those trends and and they really do fit together, right? Because um, when you have outsourcing, when you have automation what you're able to do with that is turn sales from an order taking function to a really problem solving consultative function. And so if it's really easy to buy something, if it's easy to just click a button and buy, you have to have a reason for salespeople. Salespeople need to be you know, helping to configure a solution, helping clients yes. discover which of your fee- which of your you know pr- products are applicable. There, there has to be a value that they're adding, and that is becoming more and more important. You know, different industries are maybe on a different timetable there, but it's, it's going to hit all of us at some point. And I think we've all encountered situations where we were forced to interact with a salesperson. And we felt that they didn't add any value necessarily, right? We were like, why can't yeah. I just click a button and buy that? Um, you know, you right. go to a store to get a cell phone and they're they're like talking to you and asking you, you're like, I know what I want. I, I came in here to get this specific one. Please just sell it to me. And yeah. it, that's, you know, it's, it's, it's unfortunate for the people who are in those sales roles, but it is something that we all need to be just staying on top of is, are you solving problems for people? Are you adding value or are you just adding friction? Because nobody likes the the friction that that you provide. And that, that ultimately I think it's the, is the trend as we go towards uh, more automation. I think certain sales roles, like you mentioned that are extremely simple or may not need a person there. Like those may be some roles that um, automated sales, AI platforms. I know there's many out there right now chatbots, so on and so forth, that are 
gonna automate away, but mm-hmm. it's extremely, extremely difficult to automate away emotional intelligence, right? Consultative selling, listening, responding with um, teaching and, and words of wisdom for uh, your prospect, right? Whether they choose to go with you or not, but providing that value, that genuine value, um, we're, we're far, far, far away from uh, automating those type of jobs away. Definitely. And hopefully you're not working with any companies that are developing the, the thing that's going to get all of our jobs away. Not yet. Yeah. Just don't provide them with, with helpful resources. Okay. <laughs> all right. Um, something I always like to ask our guests is, are there any resources that you would recommend for our listeners? It can be, um, you know, books, mm. podcasts, uh, things that you've found valuable that have that have really helped you on the journey to where you are today. Yeah, I'm currently reading a book called Never Split the Difference. Uh, mm. Maybe some people have read it before. Have you read it? It's a great one. Yeah. It's, it's, it's phenomenal. So every every person on our team has read it or is currently reading it. Um, it's by Chris Voss. He's, he used to be an FBI negotiator. And I've learned a ton of things so far. I'm halfway through the book. And uh, it's I've read many different sales books in the past and I've watched a bunch of YouTube videos and but this is just there's so many golden nuggets in there um about selling and negotiating uh and stuff like that so that was that's probably like the number one uh book and resource I would recommend absolutely um I can't tell you how many people I've heard that have read it that love it so if anybody hasn't um definitely check it out and it's a great one to like you said have everyone on the team read and then really discuss yes and pull out, hey, what are the principles that we're going to integrate into our process, as opposed to you read it and you pull out a few nuggets for yourself, um, sharing them among the team is really powerful. Yes, definitely. All right. Well, I've really enjoyed our conversation today, Dawei. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, me too. Um, If our listeners want to learn more about you and your work, where can they find you? Uh, So two different ways. I'm not on many social media places. So if they want to find me on LinkedIn or reach out to me on LinkedIn, you can just search my name that's d-a-w-e-i last name is l-i um i think i'm one of the only dawei leaves on there um but you can find me on linkedin or uh if you want to reach out to um just our company and speak with someone on our team we have a pretty small team we'd love to hear from you so um alawa.co is our website a-l-o-a.co uh and there's a contact form on there um that you can fill out if you want to speak with me or anyone on our team Wonderful. Um, Well, as I said, I've really enjoyed our conversation today and I know our listeners have as well. So thank you so much for being with me today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning into today's show. You can find the notes and resources for everything Dawei and I have been talking about today, including the links to his LinkedIn and the website in case anybody didn't catch those at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod three, five, seven. If you enjoyed the show today, please recommend us to a friend. That's the best way to help more people discover it. If you haven't yet subscribed, make sure to do that so you get every new episode as soon as it's posted. You can subscribe for free wherever you're listening right now. We love feedback. You can leave us ratings and reviews in Apple Podcasts or email us if you've got direct feedback, questions, suggested topics or guests that we should be talking to. Podcast at criteriaforsuccess.com. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at CFS Playbook and the blog at criteriaforsuccess.com slash insights. Let's Talk Sales is a production of Criteria for Success and is produced by Ryland Sylvester. Happy selling.